uh, looking tonight at literally a parade of kings in these two chapters, as one commentator puts it. Now, before we get to chapters uh, 15 and 16, stay with me for a moment here. Uh, turn to chapter 14. Uh, just before we read our text for the night, I want to read some, some other texts that I think will help you. As I talk about some things tonight, there are passages elsewhere in uh, 1 Kings and also in 2 Chronicles, and I'll make reference to them, that if you'll go home later and read those passages with these two chapters, everything that I say tonight will come together uh, better. But uh, look at chapter 14 and uh, pick up reading with me in verse 22. It says, uh, And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Remember uh, Baalism? Baalism was the fertility cult or fertility religion of the Canaanites. And Baal was the storm god. And uh, they believed he had a female counterpart, uh, Ashtoreth. And they would make images of, of Baal and Ashtoreth. And they believed the fertility of the earth was a result of Baal and Ashtoreth engaged in sexual practices together. And they would build high places on hilltops thinking to get closer to the clouds and they would have male and female prostitutes among the people engage in sexual acts, believing Baal would see this and he and Ashtoreth would, would have sexual practice and fertility would come to the land. So it was, it was a pagan fertility cult. And that was, that was the world around Israel and Judah at this time. Uh, I want you to turn also to 2 Chronicles chapter 12, 2 Chronicles 12, and beginning there in verse 1, it says, when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him uh, from Egypt, Libyans, Sukim, and Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. So, you know, we see that as long as the, uh, he needed God, Rehoboam would turn to God, but when he was comfortable, when his kingship was well-established, he abandoned the law of the Lord. 
And then uh, back in chapter 14 of 1 Kings, 1 Kings 14, and uh, let's read in verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Now, let's, uh, let's read chapter 15. Now, in the 18th year of King Rehoboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. What did I say? Oh, I'm sorry. In, in the 18th year of King, did I say Rehoboam? Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, and Abijam slept with his father, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to rule over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers made, <coughs> that his father had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Benadad, the son of uh, Tabermon, 
the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Benadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ijon, Dan, Amal, uh, Beth Makkah, and all Shinaroth with all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he lived in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah, none was exempt, and they carried away the sons of Ramah and its timber, with which Basha had been building, and with them King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did in the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet, and Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he had made Israel to sin. Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoke by his servant, Ahijah the Shelemite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Let's stop there for now. Uh, aren't you glad there's not a test tonight on all the kings? Now, remember what I've said. There, there was no righteous king in the northern king. We're not going to read in First and Second Kings about any kings of the northern kingdom or Israel who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, the ones who did do right in the eyes of the Lord happened to be kings over Judah the southern kingdom. And so as I've said, the challenge in reading these chapters is to understand that Israel is now the divided kingdom. It's Israel and Judah, and each one has their running set of kings. All the ones of the northern kingdom bad, some of the ones of the southern kingdom bad, some good. Okay? You know, as we... Uh, 
As we studied several weeks ago about the close of Rehoboam's reign, we saw his unfortunate legacy, didn't we? And I've listed those out for you. Uh, he was a foolish person. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we see how he took bad counsel. He took the counsel from the young men, refused the counsel of the elders, and the young men wanted him to be even harsher on the people than Solomon, his father, was. And so he was a very foolish person by not giving the people some relief, some tax relief. Uh, he was also an opportunist. He was selfish. Uh, why would he not honor a request that they'd made of him? After all, they were simply wanting him to lighten the load a little. And they're promising that if he'll lighten their load a little, they will be his loyal and faithful subjects. It was a legitimate concern, a legitimate request. So why in the world did he not go along? Well, on top of taking bad counsel, just like his father, he wanted to put high taxes on the people for the sake of his government, all of his government projects and all that he was doing. That, that's why he was putting such heavy burdens uh, on them. It appears that Rehoboam wanted God's blessing as long as he needed God to help him, as long as he needed God to help him establish the kingdom. But when the kingdom was strong, he abandoned the Lord and he led the people to abandon the Lord too. And so Rehoboam's legacy was really the legacy of a man who was willing to follow God as long as it was good politics. Uh, he's also an idolater. He tolerated idolatry, was a part of it. We, we read about that in 2 Chronicles 12. Uh, here is Jer Jeroboam leading the people of the northern kingdom into idolatry at Dan and Bethel, uh, the false altars that Jeroboam had established there to put up the golden calves. Uh, but if anything, what Rehoboam did in the southern kingdom is even worse because, folks, remember, they have the temple. They have the authentic priesthood made up of the Levites. And yet they have all that, and they are still chasing idols. So if anything, you could say that they were even more guilty. He was also a shortcutter. Uh, God disciplined Rehoboam in the southern kingdom. Uh, God tolerated uh, the sin of Rehoboam for a year, apparently. And after that year, the people had not repented. The patience of God was over. He brought the king of Egypt in who ended up capturing some of the treasures. Now, when this happened, 2 Chronicles 12 tells us that Rehoboam and the people of the southern kingdom humbled themselves before God. And so God decided not to let Egypt destroy them, but God made them slaves once again to Egypt. You know, that's what sin does, doesn't it? It sin enslaves. Now, all of this should have been a permanent wake-up call to Rehoboam and the people, you know, because... 
they're being disciplined. Why does God discipline us? Why does he chasten us? Because he loves us and he's trying to draw us back in to an intimate relationship with himself. And so what should our attitude to discipline be? We ought to return to the Lord. We ought to humble ourselves to him. But instead of taking heed, Rehoboam simply replaces the golden treasures that Shishak of Egypt took and he replaces them with bronze. And so they're just cheaper substitutes of the same thing. He sets these substitutes up now as the real thing. And every time he needs them, the guards go and get them and then pull them back, uh, put them back up. In other words, they're carrying on as though nothing has happened. Instead of addressing their real problems, they're taking shortcuts. They're crafting substitutes and just carrying on as though nothing has happened. And so you could say in this regard, he was no different than Jeroboam, and God's discipline had not corrected him. Uh, Jeroboam put up cheap substitutes at Dan and Bethel, but Rehoboam is doing the very same thing with the bronze treasures of the temple. Now that's sort of where we last left off. Now, today we're going to glance over the reigns of Abijah, Rehoboam's son, and then Asa, his grandson. Again, these are kings over the southern kingdom, or Judah. Now, at the same time tonight, we're going to see the successors to Rehoboam in the northern kingdom, who will be Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, and Omri. They're all kings of the northern kingdom. Israel. Now we're going to stop there because in, in, uh, in coming weeks we're going to look in more detail at Ahab who followed Omri. And Ahab married Jezebel. And so the next few chapters after 16, once we leave off tonight, the next few chapters after that are going to deal with Ahab and Jezebel and all the wickedness that they brought to the land. And so you see why I'm calling these two chapters a parade of kings. I mean, in the northern kingdom, especially, it's just one right after the other. What I want us to do is take a bird's eye view of what made each king either great or disgraceful. Now, before we get into the actual points tonight, let me throw in another word of introduction. Scholars have a bit of difficulty dating some of these reigns because in Judah and Israel, they had different accounting systems. For example, in Judah, the king's reign was typically counted from the beginning of the next calendar year after he took office while in Israel, the count began as soon as he took the throne. Also, some of the kings had co-regents, had their sons as co-regents uh, who would rule alongside of them in their final years, and so there would be some overlap there. And so that's why some of the dating might be a little bit different a year or two here or there. Uh, when you read the accounting of the southern kingdom and of the northern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom of Israel had nine dynasties spanning 250 years, while the southern kingdom maintained the Davidic dynasty for 350 years. And of course, that would be the line through which the Messiah would come. And so with all of its faults, God was still going to continue mercifully and graciously with the southern kingdom. Now, first of all tonight, I want you to see uh, Abijah in chapter 15, 1 through 8. He was handpicked by his father because of his proven ability, but he wasn't a godly man. He only reigns for three years. Now, he might have been a descendant of David, but he certainly didn't have David's heart nor David's character. He continued the war with Jeroboam that his father Rehoboam had engaged in. He was a man who knew better than to be subject to all of his faults. He knew the truth. In fact, over in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, he is going to preach a sermon to Jeroboam and an army of 800,000 men. And you go home and read that sermon again in 2 Chronicles chapter 13. Abijah is going to preach a sermon essentially to Jeroboam and an army of 800,000 men. And in that sermon, he is going to remind them of the true foundation for the Jewish faith. He reminds them of the fact that the line of David was the true dynasty, that God had made an everlasting covenant with David. And in that sermon, he even pointed out why the kingdom divided. He pointed to Jeroboam's rebellion against Solomon or against Rehoboam. And then he pointed out his father's immaturity in listening to bad counsel to tax the people more heavily than Solomon had. He also stated how only the sons of Aaron could serve the temple, and the only temple was in Jerusalem. And furthermore, he pointed out that Israel's priests were, were nothing more than hirelings who led the people to commit idolatry with the two golden calves. So he knew the truth. Abijah certainly knew the truth, was able to lay it all out. Well, as can so often be the case, a sermon might not be listened to. Because while Abijah was speaking, some of Jeroboam's soldiers moved behind him and they set an ambush. Abijah cried to God for deliverance, and the Lord sent deliverance. Over half the army of Jeroboam was slaughtered by the army of Judah, and uh, I think you could say that was quite a series of events at the close of a sermon, that a sermon invites an ambush and a war, right? Uh, Abijah had his troops move north. They actually captured back Bethel and some of the cities to the north. Jeroboam, after this, never recovered. The Lord struck Jeroboam and he died. It just goes to show you, you better be careful what you do with the sermon. Right? 
Now, what really is a disappointment in this case, though, is the preacher himself, Abijah. Because despite all of his understanding, look at verse 3 of chapter 15. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Now, what's that tell us right there that you can know God's truth, you can, you can communicate it to others, you can lay it all out systematically and not do it yourself? What's that show? Head knowledge, head knowledge but no heart knowledge. He was a, it's like he was a hearer of the word but not a doer of the word, as James says. And if we're like that, we're deceiving ourselves. Folks, we can know all of the truth from Genesis to Revelation to where we could sit down with somebody and explain it all out fully to them. Sit down with them over lunch and explain the gospel to them. But we may never have put it into practice ourselves. Head knowledge alone is not enough. You got to put into practice what you know. You got to live by faith. You got to walk by faith. <coughs> so again, Abijah is an example of somebody who knows the truth. He just doesn't do the truth himself. His heart was not holy. Yep. Holy. Yep. Kind of one foot in, one foot out. Yep. Exactly. Sort of lukewarm. Yep. Now the next guy, Asa, he's a good guy. He's one of the good ones. Again, he's king over which kingdom? Southern. Judah, which is southern kingdom. He was Abijah's son. He reigns for 41 years. Again, he was a good king, but things didn't necessarily end perfectly for him. Now, the first 10 years of his reign, his kingdom enjoyed peace. And during that time, he led in a national reformation. Here again in 2 Chronicles 15, you can go on tonight and read about that reformation. He cleansed the land of idolatry. He led the people to put away all of their idolatry. He fortified the land by building defense cities and by building up an army of some 580,000 men. And it's a good thing that he did so because Egypt attacked the southern kingdom. And Egypt's army was twice as large and on top of being twice as large, Egypt also had chariots. Now Asa called on the Lord and and attacked the Egyptians in the name of the Lord, and the Lord allowed Judah to see a great victory as they defeated the Egyptians. You could kind of compare it to a case of David and Goliath. Going up against Goliath, going up against Egypt, and winning the victory. In fact, Judah so soundly defeated the Egyptians and plundered them, that the Egyptians would not attack again for another 300 years. Well, the Lord sent the prophet Azariah to meet Asa and the victorious army. 
and give them a message of encouragement and warning. Uh, again, 2 Chronicles 15. You can read that on your own. Azariah's message was to seek the Lord, obey Him, trust Him, be strong in the Lord. And Azariah also uh, reviewed the dark days of the judges and because people then had turned to idols, their land had been overrun by enemies, but when they turned back to God, God rescued them. As a result of this message that Azariah brought to Asa, Asa did the reforms that we see here being recorded in verses 12 to 15. And notice he even, the, re, the reforms Asa did were so complete that who did he remove from power? His own mama. Right? Grandmother. Grandmother. I'm sorry. Grandmother. Yes. He removed his own grandmother because she was leading the people astray. Now, boy, here's, here's somebody serious about reform, right? You better be right. You, that's right. Uh, in the 15th year of his reign, Asa called for a great assembly to gather at Jerusalem to worship the Lord, renew the covenant. And so, folks, there are great happenings going on here. And people came from all around. God gave them peace for another 20 years. Great reforms. Isn't that encouraging when you read in the Bible about a leader calling people back to God? And the difference it can make in a land when the people return to God. Folks, it makes all the difference in the world. What's the psalmist say? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But he goes on to say sin is a reproach to human people. Well, when you read these adjoining accounts in Chronicles, apparently Asa got a little bit careless in his walk with God. God sent Basha, king of Israel, to war against him. Instead of trusting God, what does he do? Asa resorts to politics. He takes the dedicated treasures from the temple, he gives them to Benadad, king of Syria, and enters into a pact a covenant with a pagan nation. Now, everybody was happy with the results of what happened except for God. God wasn't pleased. And so he sent the prophet Hanani to rebuke the king. If Asa had relied on God, God would have defeated Israel and Syria and given Judah even more victories. Well, King Asa becomes angry over the prophet's message, puts the prophet in prison. God gives Asa time to repent. He doesn't. And so in the 39th year of his reign, God afflicted him with a disease in his feet. Once again, he turned his back on God. Two years later, he died. Well, at this point, the writer of 1 Kings turns to the northern kingdom now and turns to their kings. Now, with the brief exception of Jehoshaphat that we're going to meet in 1 Kings 22, the rest of the book of 1 Kings 
is going to lock in on the northern kings. Okay? And as I said, none of them were good. And first is Nadab. We meet him in verse 25 of chapter 15. He was wicked just like his father and he was killed. Basha assassinated him and took over the throne. Then we meet Basha in chapter 15, verse 33, down through verse 7 of chapter 16. He was not satisfied to merely assassinate Nadab, but he wiped his whole family out, the whole family of Jeroboam. But remember, folks, that's exactly what God had prophesied was going to happen. Basha, or Basha, reigned 24 years, and he followed the evil example of his predecessors. You know, it's been said that there's one thing that we don't learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Then there's Eli, chapter 16, verses 8 through 10. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Eli, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel and Terzah. And he reigned two years, but his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arzah, who was over the house, the household in Terzah, Zimri, or Zimri, came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So Eli only reigns two years. He was a party boy, a drinker, and so he gets assassinated by one of his commanders while he's in one of his drunken stupors. And then uh, Zimri... Verse 11 says, When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Eli, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now all the rest of the acts of Eli and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Uh, notice about him. Uh, pick up in verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah. Uh, now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp, so Omri went up from Gebethon and all Israel with him. They besieged Terzot. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins that he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. 
So he shuts his, Zimri shuts himself up in the king's house, burns it down over him, killing himself. Then Omri, verse 21 to 28, records the fact that he became king, uh, was king 12 years. He was very wicked. He was much like Jeroboam. He was an idolater. He led the people in idolatry. Is it sounding kind of like a broken record? We're told that he did more evil than all those before him. He dies. Ahab becomes king. And then God's going to end up saying the same about Ahab. He marries Jezebel, uh, a pagan foreigner, brings idolatry, Baalism into the land. And we're told that Ahab did more, even more evil than Omri. Uh, verse 33 says, Ahab made an Asherah. Again, that's Baal's female counterpart. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. How would you like that on your tombstone? Wicked, wicked, bad ruler, bad ruler, bad ruler, bad ruler, bad ruler. The people followed them in this. And remember what happens to the northern kingdom? Eventually the Assyrians come in and destroy them. Does wickedness matter in the eyes of God? Sure it does. He punishes sin. And he even deals with nations. Folks, God is sovereign over nations. He punishes nations for their sin or rewards them for their righteousness. It matters. These things matter. Folks, of course we know that sin or righteousness in our own lives matter, in our families, in our churches, but let's not forget the Bible points out that righteousness even matters in the land. Righteousness exalts a nation. Now let me give you some lessons. Number one, good leadership is hard to find. Unfortunately, good leaders seem to be in the minority. And as you read history, it seems that that's the consistent lesson of history. That leadership tends to not follow God's What do, we need to, what do we need to do pertaining to our leadership in the land? If Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, we need to pray for them. Pray for their decisions. Pray that God will grant them wisdom. And as you read 1 Timothy 2, Paul's chief concern as we're praying for our leaders to make wise decisions, that they will make decisions that will keep the doors for the gospel open. That they'll make decisions so the gospel can spread through their nation. That's Paul's chief concern in saying that we, we pray for our leaders to have wisdom. Uh, 
It's wisdom that they'll make decisions that will be good for the preaching of the gospel. So we need to pray for our leaders. Uh, you know, we criticize our leaders. How much do we pray for them? How much do we pray for those that we disagree with the most? Do we ever pray for them? A second lesson, sin is a reproach to a people. People in general suffer because of a lack of godly leadership. The people suffer when they have ungodly and unwise leaders. We see that in history too, don't we? And then the third thing we, we learn, the human heart is desperately wicked. Even when kings knew what to do, like Abijah that we looked at first tonight, he didn't do it. The propensity of mankind is to disregard God. Paul in Romans 1 to 3 talks about this. When Paul is describing lost man in Romans 1 through 3, he's talking first about the Jews and then the Gentiles. Talking about all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles. He concludes those first three chapters of the book of Romans by saying there is no one who seeks after God. And he emphasizes it. He says, no, not even one. No one seeks after God. If somebody is saved, it's because God first sought them. No one on their own seeks after God. Boy, that reveals our true need of a Savior, doesn't it? The human heart, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, the human heart is desperately wicked. Who can trust it? And you look out at mankind, you look at nations, you look at leaders and rulers, you, you just look at people in general. And there's this propensity to go our own way and do our own thing. To disregard God and to sin. And folks, but by the grace of God, God chasing after you, there go you, and there go I. Amen. Had it not been for God Amen. seeking us. Right? Okay. Any feedback you want to give tonight before we close? I know it was just a laundry list of, of these kings coming and going. That's, okay. We have a primary coming up. Mm -hmm. You're talking yes. about leaders. Yes. It's our responsibility to know those candidates and to vote accordingly. Sure. So that's where it starts. Sure. Oh, sure. A free people who can vote in elections. We have a responsibility to take part in elections. There are people around the world that would die to have the opportunity to take part in elections. So we have that opportunity. You need to take it. And what candidates stand for and vote. And do it while it's our yeah, opportunity. Because it may not always be. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You need to pray for the process too, though. 
Sure. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <coughs> yeah. I think about Asa, too. Mm -hmm. Asa started out so well. Yep. God helped him so many ways, just like he does us. But then Asa slacked up. He got complacent. He got self-reliant. Yep. Just like we do. You know, we think because we've done all this that we, we get in, a, in our comfort zone and get in a rut, don't we? And just get complacent and apathetic. And then Asa compromised the things of God. Yep. The things from God's house is what you compromise. And unfortunately, we see that in a lot of Christians today. Sure. It's like Asa didn't want to go to war. He didn't want any discomfort, war. So mm -hmm. he just kind of threw God's things away because it was easy. Mm -hmm. And Christians do that too. They don't want to compromise. Just you know, keep my mouth shut and run along. The path of least resistance, exactly. even if that's not the godly path to take. Exactly. Yeah. We learn a lot from Asa. Oh, yeah. It seems like the world cycle in general just follows like the book of Genesis. can't hear Rick, you sound like the book of Judges. The cycle we see there. The people would get comfortable. God would judge them. Uh, they would cry out to God. God would send them a deliverer. Give them victory. They would be good for a while. Uh, but then they'd get comfortable again, once again. Yep. And we see, like, like you say, we see that in, in history today too, don't we? 